Welcome to another episode of Unleashing the Future of Work Live, a guy podcast. Today, I am joined by the phenomenal Andre Benin, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, managing partner at New You Venture Partners. And we're going to be talking about his background, his story, as well as how he got into private equity investing and his thoughts on the future of education. I'm really excited about it because Andre has a really interesting story and background. So if you're tuning in, from Oakland, shout out to Oakland. That is where I am currently broadcasting from. So shout out to all of my people in Oakland right now. Please comment if you're tuning in from the UK, if you're tuning in from anywhere in the United States, let us know. We would love to shout you out. I'm really excited about today's episode. And with that said, let me bring on Andre. Andre, what's good, brother? Hey, how you doing, Tim? Glad How's to be it going, here. man? Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Oh, <laughs> thank you, man. Thank you, man. What's going on in your world, man? You know, so we're uh, we're, we're here in Salt Lake City, and uh, the yeah. the past couple of weeks have been kind of tumultuous. But at the same, yeah. same time, like we're we're definitely blessed to be uh, uh, to be here. Family's good, and and uh, work is good. So can't complain. Super blessed. Good, good man. Shout out to you. So share a little bit more about how long you've been living in Salt Lake City, and you know how did you get into doing the work that you do? Yeah, so so uh, it's it's. Uh, like in in life, like my my philosophy is to be nimble, mm. and uh, uh, arriving here in uh, Salt Lake City. So we we've been here since December thirtieth. Uh, I joined New Venture Partners uh, on December thirty first, and I've been we've been at it, uh, really trying to execute on the strategy since then. Um, my my path to to here, maybe, and, and you and I had a we, we had a conversation. So you know you know my background, but for for the audience here. So I was uh I was actually born in uh in Ivory Coast uh to two Ghanaian parents and uh my mom uh she immigrated to the United States with, with myself and and uh my older brother and uh for her uh just having a high school diploma hmm. her main thing for her main thing that she wanted to impart to her children were the importance of education so at a very young age like we were in the books and she she reinforced that in our mind and 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 uh, I'll say 15, 15 somewhat years later or <laughs> later, uh, like both my uh, my older brother and myself, like we're, uh, we both went on to get our undergrad uh, degrees at Brigham Young and also a JD's Jewish doctorate degree from uh, uh, from Brigham Young as well. And my brother, he's practicing law. Uh, he went back to a mm. private practice and and I'm, I'm, I'm managing a a fund that I'm with a, with a thesis that I'm super passionate about. So, um, in terms of uh, like getting here to new venture partners, um, after law school, I spent time not only in, in the legal world. So I worked for a judge in Delaware at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, and then I worked in uh, I worked on K Street for for uh, for a little while uh, doing government relations, and then it was there that I met the CEO of. Uh, of uh usa funds uh now strata education network oh. and uh it was it was interesting because uh like i did a little bit of work for him and he became we became close friend and ultimately he became uh, one of my closest mentors like till this day i still i still ping him for advice uh, as i was leaving the firm he was interviewing for ceo jobs and uh uh luckily he he pinged me i was on capitol hill working for on the judiciary committee and he said hey i i got this job as ceo of uh of this interesting organization, it's kind of like a like the, the organization is kind of shifting uh, yeah. a little bit. But uh, 
traditionally was a guarantor in the student loan business. And I'm like, all right, sounds good. Whenever you're ready, just let me know. And sure enough, <laughs> sure enough, he pinged me and said, hey, got the job. You should, you should move out to Indianapolis with me. And uh, that was his first hire. The rest was history. Uh, spent the first nine months on the job with him, uh, really working on strategy work, trying to re reposition uh, uh, the company from uh, from a legacy, legacy business to what it is today, which is a 501c3 public charity, really focused on uh, on completion with a purpose, and so essentially uh, helping learners uh, gain access to meaningful career pathways. And uh, for me, um, like like I, I really hit the ground running. Uh, like about sixty percent of my time was spent in, in corporate development, so doing um, really establishing like the, the strategy that we have now in terms of uh, uh, like direct investing and in, in, uh, like taking minority positions positions in companies, uh, doing uh, control investments and buyouts, and then also fund investments so we can get a better understanding and and lay of the land in terms of landscape and in, uh, in education investing. And then 40% of my time at Strata was spent in, in operations, given that I was uh, the CEO's uh, right-hand person. Uh, took a year break. I worked in uh, state government uh, against wow. my better judgment. Uh, so, so let me ask you, because, you know, you, it seems like throughout your career, you've had this common thread of really being passionate about education. And, you know, similar to you, you know, I'm, I'm a Nigel, I'm a Nigel boy, you know, uh, from, from <laughs> right, um, the motherland. So, you know, one of, it's very similar in terms of my parents. We came to the United States. Literally, we won the lottery ticket, man. Yeah. And that's how my parents came to the United States. And it was just so they can give us access to a better education. And. You know, that's always been my motif and like drive to always, you know, always be able to outsmart the competition. <laughs> right. <laughs> and if not outsmart the competition, out hustle the competition. Right. That's right. You know, for you, you know, working in, you know, private equity is so large, it's such a massive place. You know, how did your education, your self motivation really lead you to always being able to pivot into different fields within the space? So, so, uh, like my my uh, my education was is, is very uncommon in this uh, in the space that I'm in. So I have uh, my undergrad was in molecular biology, yeah. and my law which is super random. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Let's just put it so I was pre med at one point, and then at one point I went to get my PhD in uh, wow. molecular biology and focused on the uh, HIV research. I did some of that, uh, like randomly when I was in law school, but uh, ultimately like I landed in the path that I am now. But uh, so the, the education that I received from my molecular biology to my law degree were really uh, foundation points for for uh, the way that I approach uh, problems and, and critical mm -hmm. thinking. So that's really uh, like that training was really what allowed me to make these different pivots because like I had like the, the foundation in terms of critical thinking and then like, like in, in terms of law school, uh, like thinking like a lawyer is, is, uh, is one thing, like practicing is another thing. And let's say like having that foundation in terms of like, thinking like a lawyer uh, mm. was, was extremely useful in, uh, in all the periods that I made in my career. Yeah. At what moment, you know, did you realize, OK, you know, I want to be I want to be a managing partner. I want to be someone that invests in great entrepreneurs who are building world changing companies. You know, what was the allure that drove you to, to doing that work? So, so uh, it, it was really, uh, it was really my time at Strata. So, getting getting to Strata, uh, like we started a, 
like our, our strategy in corporate development initially was investing in funds. So mm -hmm. we invest in, I'll say, in like most of the education funds that are in the market today. And uh, from uh, from there, like we not only learn a couple of things, like we, so we learn number one, uh, like how like proper investments are made, like how you had to make proper investment decisions. Then two, we were getting access to like some serious deal flow. And as a result of that, like we were able to uh, uh, like either place our own best in these, uh, in these companies, but also uh, like acquire them if it makes sense. So in that process, uh, like being able to like get ingrained in diligence and learning more about these business models from these different founders and also getting a chance to interact with these founders, like I gained a passion to, to really like roll up my sleeve and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and help these founders that we were investing in for, for me, like my philosophy at Strata and I, and I'll argue that it's the uh, same philosophy for, uh, for, for, for the team there that's, that's still there. Uh, like we don't want to be just dumb money on the cap table. Like we really want to leverage our resources, develop our sleeves alongside the founders, leverage mm -hmm. our resources and be like a long-term, like not only capital partner for, for these businesses, but also, uh, be a long-term like strategic partner in terms of like giving them access to our networks, like giving mm -hmm. them access to uh, resources that are at our fingertips, research, et cetera. So um, we want to, like our, our position at Strata was, hey, if we're investing in your company, we're in it for the long run and we want to be uh, like good thought partners and good partners in general to, to yeah. you and your company. It's more than just the capital. Exactly. It can be just the capital. I mean, if it's just the capital, yeah. then you're just... Like it's it's just not fair to the founders. Like you just put money in and you just take the seat back. All right, go perform and go go scale. Like there's there's no there's no fun in doing that. Like like it's more fun like really like having conversation with the founders. If they need help, like making yourself accessible, uh, making yourself a, making yourself a, available to to them. Like like mm -hmm. all my founders, like they have my cell phone numbers and they know open door policy. You need me, you ping me. <laughs> Let me know if you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not even in trouble. Like if you if you need a if you need a chat or or whatever, just just ping me. I'm I'm, I'm here to help. Wow. Like that's uh that's my that's always my position and my approach with uh with investing and 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 uh, most most importantly with uh working with founders. Yeah. So let me talk to you, man, because there's right now with everything going on around the Black Lives Matter movement and this focus on diversity, not only in technology but also in the private equity space. There's a huge conversation on making the private equity landscape accessible for black investors, people of color and whatnot. You know, do you have any thoughts on that? Being someone that, you know, that's been in the, this field for quite some time? Yeah, so 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 honestly, like my, uh, so the events of, of uh, the past couple of weeks have really like, like brought a light, brought, brought, brought to the forefront of our minds, like a lot of, uh, a mm -hmm. lot of the issues and complexities that are happening around racism and inequality, race and equality in the, in the nation. So. Um, and it's, and it's not, a, it's not only on a social level It's it's on, there, there are multiple, multiple tiers, uh, to this issue. And, and, uh, it's interesting because as you look at the, the, the PE landscape, and if you even they like, do a, a couple of clicks down to, to the main, like private equity, like the venture capital, uh, asset class, right. It, it's, uh, there are not a lot of like black general partners, let alone like black management partners, let alone like investors in the space that are of color and that not only reflects on on uh on the firm but also reflects on the investment decisions that are made so if they're not people that are representative of uh of a certain population 
on the IC on the investor committee, then sometimes I like, guess it's, it's hard to make those decisions in terms of investing in founders of color. And, and you can see that uh, like throughout uh, the, the entire like, VC landscape, there are not a lot of uh, uh, black founders or, or founders of color that are, that are funded. Yeah. So that being said, like with everything that's been happening, like, like I, I'm a strong believer in, in, uh, in lifting where you stand and then creating a model that, that could then scale like mm-hmm. a good friend of mine from undergrad, like we've been, we've been thinking about, hey, like what, what can we do to like we're more solutions driven. Uh, like you can you can put your policy hat on, you can put your legal hat on, but at the same time, like those are those are things that are, um, it's like a longer term play. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like even like my, my my belief is affecting the 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 the, the future generation. So like how about like targeting like uh, like like black kids as early as elementary school and giving them exposure to the financial services industry. Mm. Like I, I think that's 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 critical. I, I think that's something that uh, that can easily be done, and that's something that we, I mean, in the state of Utah, there are not a lot of uh, of uh, like black students, right? So, like my 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 plan with my buddy is is to really try to source out these black students and get them exposure to the financial services industry. Uh, so that at a very young age, like they understand like like financial literacy, uh, to like even what a venture capitalist does. Yeah, like, what cash flow is. Yeah, like, how, do you, how do you stay liquid? All of these things. Man. Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> I mean, like like uh, it, it's funny. Like I, I laugh about it because like even when I was uh, like in elementary school and in uh, in high school, like I like I literally didn't I didn't even know like the intricacies of uh, mm. of the financial services industry, like the different occupations, like. I didn't know about venture capital. I didn't know about private equity. Uh, like I knew a little bit about investment banking, but that's that was about it. Yeah. So to the extent that we can get uh, get these kids like exposure to uh, um, uh, to the industry, I think it's going to be critical in shaping the future. Yeah, and I think it, it starts at that age too, right? In terms of creating pathways, exposure. And yep. because the reality is that there's no more knowledge gaps. I mean, every information is out there, right? But the yeah. the role modeling, that's what's often missing, especially in communities of color. There are no role models. Um, it's hard to find the role models that can really create those pathways. And I think that's really where the there's a huge opportunity that lies early career in high school. And, and I say that for someone that was in high school, I had no idea what a product manager was or, what, you know, or how to build software. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I learned over time, yeah. and, you know, that's a, it's, it's been it's been crazy and it's been a huge part of my life. But that role modeling is so important when you're early in age. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, that, I, I can't understate the, the importance of having mentors yeah. and uh, not, not not like passive mentors, but mentors that really care and that you can pick up your phone and like they'll they'll answer the call and like, <laughs> yeah, and, and give you advice. Like it's it's uh. Like for me, like again, mentorship has been a tremendously important in my life and in my career, and and especially in these times, I think it's important. It's incumbent upon us. Mm-hmm. Uh, for you, you have a platform. You can raise your voice. For me, like I like I'm I'm lucky enough to be in the position that I'm in. So my 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 uh, the, the plan or, or or the hope is to is to help like pave the way for for uh, for those behind me. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, yeah. I love it, man. So I want you to share a little bit more about some of the companies that you've worked with that are in your portfolio and that you've advised and some of the rock star entrepreneurs um, in the past that you've invested in and, you know, just continue to support. 
Um, so I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a couple. Um, so one, one, one main one, and it, it was more of a more of a, a turnaround story, and this is extremely like one of the most successful turnaround stories, and in, uh, in, in terms of that company that we invested in, and and it went through a, a couple of different CEOs, but the last CEO that came on board really turned things around, and and the company is now. Um, the company got acquired by uh, by a large uh, PE shop. Wow! Um, yeah, and, and that and and uh, for the, the company itself, like essentially the, the business model is providing uh, uh, like like a like diploma to uh, to 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 students. Um, and the company is called Graduation Alliance, and uh, it's been around for for a little while. And they've they've gone through some uh, like a couple of pivots, and again like like. Uh, the last pivot was the most successful one, and they they've been able to grow the company, uh, cash flow positive, which is typically in this space and in that tech. Like there, there are very few companies that are actually uh, uh, cash flow positive. Um, so so that that's that's one that's that's one that uh, that graduation last is, is is one that I really uh, enjoy working with. Um, currently in our, in our in our current portfolio, and I'm, I'm kind of biased about this uh, <laughs> about this company. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll give you two, uh, two founders that, that I really like, uh, in their company. So one is, uh, Kenzie Academy. Oh, yes. Um, so Kenzie is actually a like software engineering training and also UX, UX design training, a uh, company based out of the Midwest. And, and, uh, for me, like I, I got to know Chuck, uh, when I was still in, I was in the governor's office, uh, at the time wow. and, uh, like one, one of, uh, like I'll say the one of the most prominent name in, in, the, in that in that tech uh, I've, I've I've been lucky to know for a while, and that's Deborah Quazo. When she made the introduction to, to Chuck when I was in the governor's office, and uh, I met Chuck, we had him inside the the, the governor's office, and like after meeting, I was like, yeah, this 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 guy's a real deal. Like he's a good founder, and mm. and uh, we did everything that we could, like from a like in in the governor's office to lay out the. The groundwork, of, groundwork of the foundation for 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 him to establish Kenzie Academy in the state of Indiana, specifically in Indianapolis, and like to this day, like I like I still like Chuck and I like we still like keep in touch. In fact, we invested in him when we were at Strata. <laughs> I came over when I came over to you, Venture Partners. We made a little investment in them, so <laughs> it's, it's it's one of those uh. It's a like, really- I strongly believe in, in Chuck and his team, and and I think they're doing great things. And they're they're uh, like I'll say they're, they're no. I don't have any favorites in my portfolio. I love all of my founders the same, uh, but I, I love Chuck. I haven't worked with him for for a very long time. Yeah. Um, the the other uh, entrepreneur that I that I like and and uh, from a founder's perspective, between him and Chuck, I, I think it's like the like these are the most passionate CEOs that I know. And they very uh, mission driven and action oriented, and and the other one is Raheem Fazal of uh, SV Academy. Mm. Um, I got a chance to like, know Raheem because they were a portfolio company of one of the general partners that we invested in in Rethink Education, and I met him at a at an event in New York, and we quickly hit it off, and we became a close friend. I ended up, uh, uh, I got a chance to make the investment in this company. So Raheem's company, if you think about the uh, like the upskilling platforms that are out in the market like you or boot camps so you have a lot of them like there's a high concentration in 
in coding and, and like software engineering or more on the technical side, but there are not a lot of them that, that are really focused on like sales training. Mm. And uh, that's what uh, SV Academy does. Like they focus on sales training and the most that's important thing. Yeah, it's, 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 and, and there, it's, it's like, like tech sales, right? And and the, the most the most interesting piece or the the piece that that, that really drew me to uh, SV Academy is uh, the student population that they serve, uh, like mostly uh, mo- mostly underserved uh, population, and and they're they're making a serious difference. And I'm I'm uh, that's that's one company and and, and founded. I'm super proud of uh, to to uh, to have backed uh, in the past. That's amazing, man. We should definitely have them on the show in the future. You should have Chuck and Raheem. You, you, <laughs> you enjoy the conversation with those two. They're terrific. Yeah, you know, I would love to get your thoughts. You know, what are the characteristics or skills that you've seen that makes a successful founder an entrepreneur? Honestly, like I'll say grit. Mm. Uh, like these guys, they wake up every single morning. They live, breathe their companies. Yeah. And like they, they still have a home life, but but they're like I mean they're hitting they're pounding the pavement not only on the fundraising front like always constantly thinking about how to how to perform their craft how to perform yeah. their, their product and how to how to properly uh, leverage it and 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 I'll and I'll, I'll put a plug in here for uh, like on the impact side I think like as a as an impact investor um, like a lot of folks will a lot of question that you receive. Uh, from uh, from individual asset allocators, and they'll say, "Hey, like, like, how can you like generate like a tremendous amount of return uh, if you're focused on impact?" And and sometimes like impact tends tends to get discounted. My response, and uh, and it's it's, I'll say, it's indicative of of the work that uh like Chuck and, and Raheem are doing. If you're doing the impact side right, like it'll generate cash on the on the revenue side. Mm. If you think about it, if the, the if you're impacting students, like the amount of students that you're impacting, if you're growing student population, like it's going to reflect on the revenue side, and it's it's important to to remember that. Like, like I wouldn't discount impact for 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 no one. You gotta yeah, impact doesn't mean nonprofit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like I'm like that's not that's not how it works. Like if you're doing it right, like you're going to be able to generate revenue, and, and yeah, uh, like both can both can uh, like impact and revenue and and, uh, and returns can 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 coexist. So. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that, man. And I think, you know, impact investing, what people don't realize about it is that there are actually a lot of companies right now who are either startups or enterprises who are seeing the opportunity to get involved in impact investing, uh, whether it be in underrepresented founders, but also in a lot of the systematic issues that we're facing in society right now, whether it be related to, you know, skills gaps in education. Um, and I think, you know, that's one of the that's one of the larger magnitudes that, you know, we try to focus on our, our guide is like, how are we helping close that divide between early career employment, high school and then, you know, the enterprise. So I absolutely love that, man. You know, Andre, I would love for you to, you know, share a little bit more about, you know, if you, you know, could build a company right now and solve a problem right now, what are some of the landscapes or, or problem spaces you'd be really interested in tackling outside of education? Ooh, <laughs> that's a, that's a large question, right? That's that's a, that's a little question, man. So so I so you know what my uh, um, like I mentioned my background earlier, being from Africa. I, I think I think there's a serious need and and uh, there's a serious opportunity in Africa. I think uh, from a from a workforce uh, development standpoint, and and also from an education standpoint. From again, my, my selfishly, the thesis of uh, 
of, uh, of, of my fund, of our fund, it's uh, post-secondary workforce or education or digital learning to, uh, to future work. I think if I was to build a company, like it would focus within that lens in terms of like, how do you really upskill mm. uh, learners uh, that are in Africa? If you think about like the issues that are facing the learners in Africa, uh, some being remote, some being like rural, like how do you reach them and help help to upskill them so you can uh, help provide a better life for them? I think that's that's uh, that's the key. If you think about uh, like my the, the if you think about Ghana, like the, if you're if you're thinking through uh, the actual uh, like the president of Ghana, you hear you hear him mention that he's focused on the on the youth and how to how to upskill him. And I think that's a that's a serious issue. I, I think you can focus on you, but but there are also adult learners that you can focus on. So building a company that's focused on upskilling uh, like learners from uh, from youth to uh, to adult, I think is something that uh, that I seriously consider. Not that I'll not that I'll do it because there are love people that are less smarter in terms of building <laughs> companies than I am. Uh, uh, but but uh, but again, like thinking through like the needs of uh, of a nation, because hmm. because I think like Africa has like a like if you're to penetrate Africa, like the you, you need to customize your solutions to like different uh, different nations because they have different needs. It's so fragmented. So, Exactly. Exactly. So, so if you're if you're approaching Africa and they're thinking through, um, uh, like the different needs that are existing at the state level or, or the the country level, and customizing the solution really upskill the learner in terms of like the actual like key industries that are within those uh, countries, that is something that that could be seriously powerful and and most important like you're upskilling the the folks that don't have access to education, so. You get them, uh, you get them upskill, and then you plug them into jobs. Like I think, I think that's uh, that that would be a game changer. Hmm. That's powerful, man. So that's a huge idea for someone that's watching, tuning into this, or is going to be listening to the recording later. That's a product idea. You might want to share to Andre. <laughs> Andre, man, it was lovely having you on the show, man. I was like, where can the people follow more of your work and learn more about the things that you're doing, man? Excuse me. Where can people follow you and learn more about oh, what you're doing? Yeah, just just, uh, just I'll say ping, ping me on the like ping me on LinkedIn. Like follow what we're doing at a uh, uh, new venture partners. We're we're pretty excited about the space. Like we think we think the time for there, there's a paper that came out like back in I think like 2013. In fact, I was on the phone with the author uh, this uh, this morning. It's called The Avalanche Is Coming. It was how it was about how a uh, higher ed would be disrupted. The the paper I think it calls for like the disruption happening like ten years from when it was written. So like essentially like twenty twenty three. Wow. That, that disruption is happening now. Right? <laughs> so so uh, it, it's one of those things. I mean like like this is uh this is a time to really affect change at the at the post secondary level and most importantly affect change when it comes to future work. There's a lot of uh, the traditional way of thinking is, is being disrupted and, and uh, a lot of things, a lot of uh, a, a lot of discussion around workforce will be centered around uh, like skills based mm -hmm. uh, instead of like what has been uh, previously. So uh, we're we, we want to say that we're pretty involved in this in, in those discussions like given uh, given like the thesis of our fund, but also like given given uh, like our relationship with uh, Western Governors University. So and they're i'll say they're at the forefront of uh of that fight so very true very true 
with that said, Andre, thank you so much. It was truly an honor having you on the Unleashing the Future of Work. A guide live podcast. Man, we gotta have you on for a future episode, brother. You let, you, you let me know. I got you. I got you. <laughs> as, as, as they as they say in uh, in Niger, anything for my man, uh, for my Oga. Appreciate you so much, brother. Please, man, be well. Talk to you soon. We'll see you, man. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in. That was the first part of today's two-part episode. We're definitely going to be back soon with another lovely guest in the LND space. You don't want to miss who we have coming on. So definitely make sure you stay tuned. We're going to take a little bit of a break, and then I'm going to come back on with our amazing guest. All right. Talk soon.
Welcome back to another episode of Unleashing the Future of Work, a guide podcast live. Today, I am so excited for the person I am about to announce next on this special two-part episode. Keith is a workforce futurist, Mr. Keith Keating, and a super active LinkedIn influencer and evangelist of the future of work. And today, we're just going to be talking about everything related to L&D right? What the future of work looks like, the shift that we're seeing to remote work, and really getting some of his tactical thoughts on what organizations can do to adapt to this future. Please, if you're tuning in and you're going to love this episode, share it with your network. Make sure you comment, ask quick questions or I questions. And more importantly, make sure this information gets out of there. So with that said, I'm excited to really dive deep with Keith because he has a, a design thinking background similar to I. And, you know, I think we're going to really go deep on what are some of the practical things leaders within organizations can do to actually build a future-proof workforce. With that said, let me bring on Keith to the show. Keith, how's it going, man? Good afternoon. Good morning. Wherever in the world <laughs> everyone is joining from, it's good to see you live. <laughs> All right. Where are you tuning in from, man? I'm in Detroit, Michigan today. Wow. Yeah, I live here part-time uh, between multiple places, but I'm here a lot for work. So this is my second second location. Wow, that's amazing. So how long have you been living in Detroit, man? Four years. Four years. Wow. So what brought you to Detroit? General Motors. Ah. So G- GM, is, uh, GM is my main client right now that I focus on from a L&D perspective, design thinking perspective. So um, I w- I love them enough, and they loved me enough to have me move here from Hong Kong of all places. <laughs> that is crazy, Hong Kong. And while you were there, were you were you, were you also working in L and D as well? Yep, yep. For uh, HSBC, I ran uh, training and development for Asia. So it's it's a big transition to move from Hong Kong to Detroit, Michigan. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I would love for you to share a little bit more uh, with us, you know, about your background and how long you've been in the L&D space and, you know, been leading the future of work as a workforce futurist. Absolutely. So I've got about 20 years experience. Um, I started when I was five. So I um, have played every role in learning and development from being a trainer, facilitator, which is still one of my favorite functions to organizational development. Uh, change management, instructional design. And for the last five or six years, I've been focusing on global learning strategies. So I've had the opportunity to grow up all around the world and have a really multicultural, diverse background. And so it's really continuously drawn me to this concept of globalization and how do we act as global organizations, even when our headquarters may be in the U.S. What I find predominantly is U.S.-centric headquarters often don't equate to a global workforce or global at least mindset. So that's, mm. that's really what kind of led me down that path. And I would say in terms of um, workforce futurism, um, it's a term that everybody's gravitating to. And I, you know, I hate to kind of throw myself into that, that group. You know, I've been a fan of yours for several years now, once I was introduced to you. And um, for me, it's, the reason I got interested was there was a headline about three or four years ago, and it was 800 million people are going to lose their jobs within the next 13 years. Yeah. And when I saw that, it was it was shocking to me and alarming. And I thought, well, 
this is scary. What does this mean and as a learning development professional? How can I help people? Mm. And so that was my first entrance to kind of this concept of what's the future of work look like? And is it really as dark and gloomy as these types of headlines say? And so that, that turned me on to it. Really, my passion is around helping empower, encourage, and enable people to take control over their future. Because we can't rely on corporations. We can't rely on the government. I don't believe we can rely on higher education. We have to be our own advocates for our future, whatever it is. And so we have to take control over that. So individuals like you and me, we need to empower people to figure out how do they actually do this? What does that mean to be prepared for the future of work? Yeah. No, and I think it's so powerful that you're mentioning that because I think a lot of people still have the the traditional mindset of that you have to rely on your corporation and there's not there's not ways for you to create that flexibility in your life and career or you know, second force of income, all of that thing. You know, and I think it's a, it's a big mindset shift, right? You know, you know, what are some of the ways that you think leaders within organizations can start cultivating, you know, this mindset that you you know you and I already have. I would say the first is lifelong learners mm. in that with make that part of your culture. We have to embed learning as part of the culture and stop thinking about learning as an event that happens someplace else where you're stopping your flow of work. You're going into a classroom. You're taking a web based training on the LMS that's taking you out of your environment. It's making it this outside activity. It needs to be constant. And the truth is that it is constant. We're not necessarily aware of it. I mean, every time your mobile device, whether it's Samsung, iPhone, whatever it is, there's a new update, there's some learning that's going on right there. You're having to figure out what's just changed. How do I relearn how to do this? And so that's a very minor example. But I think from a leadership perspective, it's embracing lifelong culture. It's creating opportunities for our talent to be learning at work. So not just forcing them to do this outside of work. For example, I host a book club at General Motors, and we give our teams opportunities to read during their work hours. We're not gonna force them to do your work for eight, nine, 10 hours a day, and then go home and then read and then come back and talk about it. So giving employees opportunities like that, um, I think it's also important to embrace this mindset that goes along with lifelong learning of learning, unlearning, and relearning. Mm. And the concept of learning. I think it's a powerful framework. Learning, unlearning, and relearning. Absolutely. So when we think about learning in general, um, I would say our parents' generation was more of you go to university or you study your skill or your trade. So you're, you're going up and you're learning and then you're applying it. And you apply it and you stay with that company until you retire. That mindset no longer exists. Now it's we go and we learn something, we have to unlearn it. Then it's time to relearn something else and we unlearn it and we relearn. And that type of mindset helps us be agile, adaptable, and it helps us fill that next organizational gap. Mm -hmm. And the reality is for me, that's what I want everyone, not just the people in my organization, but everyone to recognize is that we truly don't know what the future holds. We mm -hmm. have no idea. We don't know how many jobs are going to be created. We don't know what type of jobs are even going to exist in the future. If you think back 10 years ago, uh, you know, we're now seeing uh, social media, massive influx of jobs, professional video game players. Uh, you can be a video analyzer on YouTube. None of those jobs existed when I was a kid on that list of what you want to be when you grow up. 
And so now they've got all these cool jobs that we never knew were around. In 10 years, the same thing is going to happen. So the point is, we don't necessarily know what it's going to be like in the future, but we do know that we can prepare for it. And we can prepare by being agile, adaptable, and we can learn, unlearn, relearn. And to do all of that, you have to be a lifelong learner. Learning doesn't just stop when you graduate college or you get that next certificate. It's got to be continuous. Mm. Mm. It's, 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 it's so funny you, you, you're sharing this because, you know, for, for me, it's always been my mindset that if you want to thrive, you always have to be learning, right? Like that's my motto. And that's a, a motto that we really like carry forward with the guy. You know, so that's a faith that always be learning mindset and, and create that lifelong learning thread and framework that you just provide. I think one thing is our social campaigns around it. It's, it is valuable for our leaders to be promoting this, but I find that it's even more valuable for my colleagues to be promoting yeah. this. Uh, I'll give you an example. At Citigroup, there was a campaign called Hashtag Be More, and it was all about how we can be more, we can be better. And I love that because it was, um, again, not top down. It was all It was colleagues sharing stories stories about what they've done in that last month to learn something new, how it's better, how it's created them to be a better person, both per personally and professionally. And I think mm -hmm. that the, the other thing that's important for us to stop segregating is this focus on just learning at work, for work. We tend to focus on what are the skills that our organization needs rather than what are the skills that Tim needs? What are the skills that Keith needs? What are, what are my passions that I can continue to help grow and thrive on, but also combine that with work? And what I find is, and I'm a proponent of this too, when we think about the organization, we tend to focus on the skill gaps within the organization. And instead of finding the skills where our individuals thrive, we tend to find what skills are you already doing? What skills are already in that job set? What skills do I, the organization, need? And how can I get you to learn those skills to serve me better, the organization, rather than to help our talent thrive? And, and I think part of that is that organizations fear, well, what if I create this environment and my teams recognize this isn't the place they want to be in no. or isn't the job that they want to be in? That's great. For, I, I believe that that's great. Let's give them that opportunity and exposure to learn about themselves because the more that you know yourself, the more that you know what your uniqueness is, what your skill sets are, the better employee you're going to be, the better individual that you're going to be, and the more you can thrive. Yeah, no, that's so powerful, man. Actually involving the people. You know, let's talk about the skills, right, that are necessary. You know, one of the things that you often share on LinkedIn is the fact that we're moving towards a, a more human-centric right, where creativity, empathy, and adaptability are more crucial. You know... Why is it from your point of view? One, and so in my opinion, all companies exist based on their employees. You yeah. employees, what do you have? Some people say, well, yeah, but you know, look at Uber or Airbnb. They're based on a platform. Well, first of all, people created the platform. And second of all, it's people behind the platform that keep the business running. So you take away the people, what do you have left? Mm. My opinion, it's nothing. And so people are the most important aspect, I think, of any business. I understand that businesses are in the business of making money, but you can't. 
without your people there. And so for me right now, um, what I like to, to tell executives I'm working with, the CEO should stand for chief empathy officer. Mm. That's what our CEOs right now should be focusing on. And we see a lot of great examples of those and a lot of bad examples of those, especially with what COVID, the, the transition that we have right now with COVID and the significant loss of work and how different leaders are handling those situations. And so that's really given some examples of companies that are thriving in terms of this downward spiral temporarily and how they how they handle their employees. So to answer your question, the first is empathy. Chief empathy officer, because our businesses are founded and run by people. Yeah, uh, I would say next is uh, problem solving. Uh, so I, you know, I go back to the top five skill sets, which is empathy, creativity, problem solving, interpersonal skills, and I'm missing the fifth one. Adaptability, man. Adaptability, agility, creativity, yeah. all of those. And, and the reason is those are our higher order cognitive skills. Mm. Those are the skills that we do better than technology. And so yeah. that's part of the challenge that I find that people have is there are some that are gravitating toward being angry at technology, automation, robotics. Our jobs are being stolen. They're being taken away. The truth is there are a significant amount of tasks that mm. technology does better. So let's let it do that yeah. because it complements us. It augments us. And it allows us to focus on what we do best. And what we do best is that creativity, that empathy, that problem solving, mm. the adaptability, agility. That's what we should be focusing on. So going back to your question, that's why I believe that those are important skill sets to focus on because that's what separates us from artificial intelligence. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that, man. And, you know, I think it's the strategic thinking. You know, that's where we shine as human beings, being able to actually see and recognize patterns. You know, in, in, in what you mentioned too, Keith, right, about some of the leaders who are really adapting to COVID-19 or while during COVID-19, you know, Brian Chesky was one of the leaders. I was like, oh, this is really great what he's doing to pivot Airbnb to better support hosts. But also, you know, when they were going through the layoffs, one of the things that Airbnb did is they actually allowed the people that were leaving Airbnb to keep their computers. So it could be easy for them to find opportunities beyond Airbnb. And they actually set set up a talent manager platform or talent management or recruiting platform, so other people can actually find talent that was former Airbnb, you know, um, workers. And I thought, you know, to your point, those are the things that leaders can do to show empathy during tough times like this. Absolutely, and uh, and I think that I'll, I'll do the flip side of that. I think that Uber still has a long way to go in terms yeah. of being empathetic. Um, I, I saw firsthand the situation a couple of weeks ago where they laid off 3,500 people in a three minute Zoom call. I mean, just talk about the lack of empathy there, the lack of personalization, the lack of helping to prepare them for the future. And, you know, for me, what I like to focus on is the concept of second skilling. And so second skilling is creating these new skills for us while we still have our jobs today. And I think that a lot of organizations could do better at this because if we wait till they're laid off, if we wait till they're on the path of redundancy, or we wait till they're so filled with fear about the future of their job, they're not open to learning something new. So we have an opportunity as leaders within organizations to create this second skilling now before we get to that phase. It, it is great that they are helping and COVID is a bit of an anomaly, obviously. None of us could prepare for COVID. 
No one. Right. You know, it, it, if futurists were really good at our jobs, <laughs> we, we would have known. <laughs> Bill Gates, Bill Gates knew there were a few people that, that knew. Yeah. <laughs> when we look at industries where there's going to be a decline, retail sales workers, logistics managers, warehouse managers, truck drivers, we already know today that those jobs are going to continue to dwindle in the near future because of automation technology. So we should be proactively working with those industries to try and help those individuals prepare now for that. So that they can second skill. I don't think that we're doing enough of that. In fact, it's a conversation I'm starting to have with in the L&D space because we're creating this almost this confirmation bias or we're creating this echo chamber. Like the conversation you and I are having today, I have all the time within my L&D network. But we're the ones that need this conversation. Our jobs are pretty secure or at least we're agile enough to figure out what's our next move. It is these other industries, again, retail sales workers, you know, the trucking industry, warehouse manufacturers, those people aren't in my network. And so I'm trying to figure out how do I how do I get to them to share this information with them about second skilling, about all of this so that they can start to prepare now. Yeah. You know, I think I would, I would love for you to touch on, you know, whose responsibility should it be? for skilling and, you know, providing workers with the secondary skills, as you mentioned? It's a difficult question. I think that it's a shared responsibility. So if we break it down, we have private sector, we have public sector, and we have government. Then we have the individuals themselves. I think that everybody plays a part in it. Uh, And I don't want to get political. Uh, there (laughs) There are some countries that do this really well. Uh, Singapore does this phenomenally. Lots of Europe does this really well. I think that United States, we have a long way to go to be protecting Mm. our workers, to be giving them access to these skills. I think there are a number of organizations, Microsoft, Amazon, uh, General, uh, drawing a blank. uh, General Assembly? Is that what you think? Thank you. Yep. General Assembly that does a great job with creating programs. Uh, so we could do better. So the answer to your question is, I think everybody plays a role in it, but in my opinion, it's up to the individual. It's, I, I am not expecting my organization to prepare me for the future. I don't expect the government to do it. I don't expect my next job to do it. I believe that it's my responsibility as a lifelong learner that I should be finding my uniqueness, my skill set. And I think that there's enough tools out there. There's enough free tools out there. You know, edX is a phenomenal resource, edX.org, to learn new skill sets. I was just teaching myself uh, about Bitcoins and blockchain a few weeks ago. Um, So it's, you know, it's a really great way to just start learning new terms, new phrases, new different types of technologies. So it's a shared, it's a shared responsibility at the end of the day. It's up to us. It's up to people like you and I to continue to advocate for this. Yeah. You know, I think what I love about what you're saying too is this this importance of self-directed learning, right? Mm-hmm. You know, everything that you know as a workforce futurist and as an LD professional, you have to learn it. You have to really adopt that mindset. And you know, one of the organizations that has really advocated for the growth mindset, and I think it also pairs up with always be learning mindset is Microsoft and Satya Nadella when he came into you know leadership that was one of the first things he instituted like there's a mindset that everyone is always learning because really you know as an organization if you you know get so 
if you get high on your own supply and you don't think there's room for growth, you start losing now. Even that institutional knowledge that has made you that successful organization, you start losing out on how to adapt to market circumstances, right? Because you're not learning anymore. And so I, I love what you're saying about, you know, the always be learning mindset. You know, and I want to ask you, when you think about the future of learning, right, as an L&D professional, where do you see it going from being self-directed? What else do you see kind of coming coming up in the pike um, from your perspective, Keith? I think it'll, it's a lot more personalized. It's mm. a lot more learning in that flow of work, in that moment of need. So again, going back to that idea, we need to break down the walls where learning happens outside. Learning is someplace else. Learning is something I have to go to, to whereas learning is just part of my environment, whether it be through my mobile device, through books, through discussions like AR, that. AR, all of these things. Yep. Um, and, and I think that going back to your earlier point, um, when we think we know everything, we can't possibly learn. Yeah. And so, you know, our mind is just closed off because why? I don't need to learn. I already know everything. And so it's, it's a mindset. It's a shift of the mindset that we have to be focusing on. And really being content is a mindset that puts us at risk. I know a lot of people that feel like, well, I'm you know, at this stage of my career. I don't need to keep learning. And that mindset puts them at risk because the only thing that we know for sure is change. And the speed at which change is happening is accelerating faster than ever. And so what we know is that our organizations are continued to change and to evolve. We change. We evolve. L&D also needs to change and evolve. And so going back to your question, today, learning and development as a practice, we're known as the providers of learning. Yeah. Some have even called us the owners of learning. I don't want that responsibility. <laughs> I don't want to be known as the owner of your learning. Yeah. For me, the, the next stage of the L&D industry is enabling, encouraging, and empowering the learners to take control over their future. We need to continue evolving from being content creators to content curators. Because more often than not, the content already exists. We've got to stop trying to put a new label on it or come up with a new frame or new methodology and get our stamp on it and sell it. Rather, let's find what already exists. Maybe we localize it. In fact, the model that we tend to follow is you uh, borrow, bend, buy, and then you build. Build last because we can probably find it out there and, and localize it and make it our own. So we just need to evolve along with the needs of our learners. And that's what I don't think that we do quick enough. Mm, that's powerful, man. That's powerful. So learning in the flow of work and really evolving over time with the needs of the learners within your organization. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, it, it just, it's logical. If you think about how everything evolves, <laughs> simple. I don't think that our industry evolves fast enough. And mm. part of that is, I think the lack of rigor, uh, you know, and this is, and I'm not, what I'm about to say is not a disservice to any instructional designer, but you don't need to have a degree to be an instructional designer. Not that you need a degree, but you don't need to have certifications. You don't need to have any type. There's no quality check. Any, and that's the same with a lot of industries. Um, anybody can call themselves a workforce futurist. Doesn't mean that they're doing any of the research behind it. Doesn't mean that they've actually applied it, that they've gone past the theory into the application. And that's what I find a lot in the L&D space is in many organizations, it's a dumping ground. Mm. It's where people end up, not necessarily where people desire to be or do the research. 
And so, you know, someone said it to me recently, um, just because you could run a marathon 10 years ago doesn't still make you a marathon runner. So <laughs> what are you, it's true. What, so the question to me was, what are you doing? What are we doing as an industry to continuously evolve, continuously grow and challenge ourselves? And that's where design thinking comes in. Mm, talk to us about that, man. Yeah, when I first was introduced to it about four or five years ago, um, it wasn't a really great story. Someone came to me and said, I think you should go learn design thinking. I said, okay. So I went to MIT, uncovered what it was, and just had this massive aha, insightful moment. And just as simple as, I've never been putting the learners first. Mm. When my business comes to me with an order for me to execute, I go into my toolbox in my brain and I pull out what I think is appropriate rather than being a trusted advisor, rather than being a consultant and stepping back and asking, what do the learners need? Is this truly a learning and development solution or is there another business problem going on? You're just trying to pawn it off on L&D, which happens quite often. And so the framework of design thinking, and just in case viewers aren't familiar, design thinking is a five-step methodology for creative problem solving. Empathy, define, ideate, prototype, and test. And the reality is design thinking is all about the end user, yeah. the learner, your customer, your student, whoever it is. And so in my case, I use it for L&D, for our learners. It's heavily known for its product derivatives from Apple, from IDEO, from the D school at Stanford. So for me, the aha moment was, I'm not putting my learners first. I'm not mm. taking a step back to understand the problem, understand the experience they need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like really thinking through the experience, it, it, I think, you know, and it's such a, I love how you were able to find out the kind of the cross section overlap between design thinking and L&D because mm -hmm. all an experience, right? How learners learn and what, what are their best habits and their best forms of learning, their best modes? Yeah, and there's so many opportunities for design thinking in every industry. So basically, if you have humans, if you're dealing with humans, design <laughs> thinking may be a tool for you to use if you're trying to understand them. You know, the way that I describe it is the difference between a mystery and a puzzle. A yeah. puzzle, yeah. you have all the pieces right there. You kind of already have even the solution. You just have to put the pieces in the right place to get yeah. that. A mystery, you don't know. You don't know what it is. You're going along with the journey. You're trying to understand the situation, understand the players and figure out what's the actual story that's going on here. What am I actually trying to solve for? And that's where design thinking comes in is when you have those types of problems or even just it's a challenge. It doesn't have to be a problem. Mm -hmm. And it's a mystery. Design thinking is applicable. The, the, where it's evolved for me lately is around continuous improvement. Design thinking is a phenomenal tool for continuous improvement because it's a mystery in the sense of how can we be better or could we be better? And that's how we're using it at General Motors is when I joined it four years ago with our team, the Center of Learning, the question was, how are we doing as a learning organization? And the answer was, we're doing great. All of our surveys are good. All the feedback on the trainers is great. Oh. It's okay. Great, great. Could we be better? Well, what do you mean, could we be better? I mean, all of our surveys are great. Everyone's telling us we're great. That's good. But could we be even better? Is there something else that our learners need that we don't know about? Maybe we're not asking the right questions on the surveys. Maybe we've got our bias goggles on. And we're only looking at whatever we're just delivering right now rather than the broader picture. And so eventually the team caught on. They recognized the value. And we did do a design thinking initiative. 
and we uncovered a massive gap. What we uncovered was that we had only been focusing on teaching them the product knowledge for the vehicles they're selling. So teaching them the cab size, the, the engine, the vehicle modifications. We were never teaching them how to sell. The power skills, listening, empathy, negotiation, how to sell yourself as a business, how to sell a vehicle. And so the, the, what, the aha moment was dealerships assumed that we were teaching that and we assumed that dealerships were teaching that. So it was the biggest gap. And so we were able to uncover that and immediately close that gap. We've got a really great sales program that's called Sales Professional Series, teaches them all the power skills behind selling. We've got great stats and data around how sales have increased as a result of this. And so how do we just stop with the mindset of our surveys say we're great, The verbal feedback says we're great. We would not have uncovered this other opportunity to make things even better. So my recommendation to everyone is just when you are happy, when things are going good and you think everything is great, ask yourself, could it be even better? And consider design thinking as a tool to use to help uncover that. That's powerful, man. That's powerful. Keith, man. You are a killer workforce futurist. You know, <laughs> I would love for you to share a little bit about some of the projects you're currently working on with our amazing community. Uh, absolutely. So um, doing a lot of podcasts like you, learning from you, uh, doing a lot of publishing. Uh, I like to share share the messages. You know, right now I'm a big proponent of evolving past um, future proof. Wow. Uh, and I, I'm going to call you out because you said it at the beginning of it. And I've been using it as well. And I just, I had a moment recently where I was thinking about what, what is that saying? If I tell somebody I have uh, the secret sauce to help you future-proof your career, is that legitimate? And can, can I actually do that? And the answer was no, I can't future-proof you, but I can future-prepare you. Mm. And that's a big distinction between the two words, you know, and I'm thinking about COVID and I think, you know, anything I tell people today, the 30% of the country that's now unemployed, it, let's say six months ago, we were talking about future proofing. Well, there's no way we could have future proof for this. Yeah. Yeah. In 10 years, we can't future proof for that, but we can give them the agile adaptability, resilience, all these skill sets and tools that they need to be prepared for situations like this so that they know how to navigate. That's amazing. So you're creating kind of a, a framework around future, future preparing people to survive uh, no matter what happens in their career. Absolutely. And then I think the other piece right now that I'm really focusing on is critical thinking. Mm. As it gets near election time, again, I won't get political, <laughs> but it's important. You know, it's it's uh, I just launched a podcast called um, The Lost Art of Critical Thinking. Mm. It is so such a powerful skill set that we're not focusing enough on. And in my research, what I uncovered is there was a study done about two years ago through Twitter. Um, and it was um, they had uh, the, the researchers created a tweet with a title of an article. And in the body of the article was just lorem ipsum. It was all of the letters, no actual sentences. And so they published it to see how many people would retweet it. And it had over 60,000 retweets of an article that actually had no content in it. 
And so it just helps to illustrate and uncover that we've got this confirmation bias. We have this echo chamber that we're now in the habit where we live in a character, a world rather, of 140 characters. And everything is based on that headline. We don't even bother to read what the actual subject is. We see something that's, that is familiar to us. It's our belief. And we forward it. We just say, yep, I believe in that. And it goes on without even truly taking a step back to think, what does it actually mean? Where did they get that data from? Mm. Is it truthful? Because we're relying too much on the fact that something is published and, and making it truth when it's actually not. We've got to be critical thinkers. We've got to be advocates for the information that's out there. Yeah. And, that, and I think in doing that, you're preventing polarization, because I think one of the, the things that's, that we're really struggling struggling with as a society right now is that everything's oversensitized and everything's over polarized. So you always have, you know, this distinction and this this battle. But when really when you, you know, our people with information from a neutral standpoint, you challenge them to make their own conviction, their own choices, their critically think, you'll start different society you'll start to see different mindsets and, and, and more importantly people who can have mature conversations about their perspective yeah so there's a quote by f scott fitzgerald and he says that first-rate intelligence is defined mm-hmm. as being able to hold two opposing ideas in your brain at the same time and still being able to function and i don't think that we have enough first-rate intelligence right now in this country it's to your point it's polarized it's yes or no, it's binary, it's my way or no way. Rather than just listening, let me hear you. I don't have to agree with you, but I can at least take that thought in. I can sit with it, I can explore it and determine how I feel about it, but I can give you your space to have your thoughts and I can have space to have my thoughts. And that's just lost right now. And it it hurts to see what's happening in the country, regardless whether you're right or you're left, they're both way off in their corners, and we've got mm-hmm. to start bringing people closer together to practice first-rate intelligence. Mm-hmm. That's powerful, Keith. Keith, man, where can the people follow more of your work and the amazing things that you're doing? Uh, LinkedIn, highly, highly active on LinkedIn, so feel free to check that out. Otherwise, uh, my website, keithkeating.com. Dude, Keith, thank you so much for being on the show today. We definitely need to have you on for a future episode, man. You're amazing. Absolutely. I'd love to. I love love chatting with you. Love watching your work. <laughs> Thanks so much, Keith. Talk to you soon, my friend. Thanks. Thank you so much for tuning in today's episode of Unleashing the Future of Work. We were fortunate enough to have Andre and Keith on to share a little bit more about their background and their passion for education and LND. If you love today's episode, please make sure you share with your network. It's going to be on Spotify immediately as soon as I'm done recording this right now. And if you're interested in being a part of Guide's early beta program, definitely check us out at guideapp.co. With that said, I hope you're staying safe, healthy, and abundant, and I will be talking to you soon. Peace.